0: So we're in the 14th century, if you've been listening to this podcast. We have embarked on an investigation of Geoffrey Chaucer's poetry. Now, Chaucer, of course, is known for his unfinished work, The Canterbury Tales, this long series of tales in Middle English, in rhyming, mostly iambic pentameter. And Chaucer is often seen as the father of the sort of um, the short comic tale in English. Anytime you have a story where there are colorful characters, most of whom are very flawed and they're up to no good, or uh, their pratfalls are involved, often love, not necessarily seen as noble, but perhaps a little bit silly. All of this goes back in English storytelling to Chaucer. But Chaucer is also a poet of just good short lyric poetry. And I want to spend the next podcast or two looking at Uh, Some of his short lyric poems called ballads. Now, the word ballad comes to mean in English usually a poem that's in quatrains, often that's four lines, often the lines are relatively short, often in tetrameter, and often we think of a ballad as telling a good rip-roaring tale. Even something like the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner we might think of as sort of the super ballad. We have these short lines. It tells a, you know, a story of the macabre and the adventurous. That's not what ballad meant in, in Chaucer's Day. In Chaucer's Day, and it's thought that he's writing these sometime in the 1380s, a ballad was not necessarily narrative at all. The rules governing a ballad were thus. There were a number of stanzas the ballad I'm going to read today is actually only three stanzas. Each stanza was seven lines each. They were actually in iambic pentameter. It's A, B, A, B, B, C, C. Also, Chaucer's ballads are often called Boethian ballads, referring to the philosopher Boethius, who was very popular in Chaucer's day and really throughout all the Middle Ages. They're called Boethian because they dwell on virtue, on questions especially of ethics and right-living, especially right-living in the face of the hardships of life. So I want to read one of his Boethian ballads that's called Gentiless. So gentiless sounds a little bit like gentleness, but that's not quite what it means. When we think of gentleness, we think of like physical gentleness, like gently touching something or, or sort of being soft in our, in our behavior. But gentleness has a slightly different connotation. And you'll see that we have an archetype of this type of nobility in the poem that we keep returning to. So as I read, think about what is Chaucer doing with this idea of nobility, of gentility, we might say. And who is this person he keeps coming back to that is our archetype of that nobility? The first stock, father of gentleness, what misireth gentle for to be? Must follow his trace, and all his wittest dress, Virtue to love, and vices for to flee. For unto virtue longeth dignity, And not the reverse, softly dare I deem, All were he mitre, crown, or diadem. The first stock was full of righteousness, True of his word, sober, piteous, and free, Clean of his ghost, and loved busyness, against the vice of sloth in honesty. And but his heir love virtue as he did, he is not gentle, though he rich a seam. all were he mitre, crown, or diadem. Vice may well be heir to old riches, but there may no man as man may well see. Bequeath his heir his virtuous noblesse, that is a propid unto no decree." But to the first of fodder in majesty, that maketh heiress hem that can him queen, all were he mitre crown or diadem. Now, just like in our last episode, we read some Chaucerian Middle English, and I warned you, not every word makes sense to us in English. But I think we can mostly follow And I tried to do a pronunciation of most of the words in a way that it's the modern pronunciation any good Chaucerian who studies carefully how Chaucer would have said all the vowels will be offended in every line that I just read. But I really want to see Chaucer as a lyric poet who can talk to us today and who he can understand today. And since I'm reading this out loud and you're not seeing it on the page, I want it as understandable as it can be. So what is this gentiles he's talking about? Well, these first two stanzas, he gives us this archetype of gentleness. The first a stock father of gentleness he calls him and then he returns in the second stanza the first stock was full of righteousness true of his words sober piteous, and free clean of his ghost and loved busyness against the vice of sloth and honesty who is this first stock that stock spelled s-t-o-k In Middle English, but we would use S T O C K. This stock is referring not to broth, but to hereditary stock. In fact, our first father, we might call him. This, of course, is Adam himself, the biblical Adam. Of course, Chaucer is deeply steeped in late medieval Christian understanding of history and the cosmos. And so we have this image that gentiles, nobility, maybe even gentility in an older way of thinking of that word, has its archetype in Adam himself. Of course, this is a pre-fall Adam, but also in putting this as our first stock, Adam, in a Christian context, I think Chaucer also wants to think of that second Adam, Christ. And in fact, there's apparently some critical debate about later in the poem whether a description that seems to be of Adam is actually about Christ. But I want to look at these first two stanzas for a minute before we get to the third and perhaps most mysterious stanza and see what he's telling us about Adam as this archetype of gentleness. So the first is Stock, father of gentleness, what man desireth gentle for to be must follow his trace and all his witus dress. We would say wits instead of witus today, meaning your wits, especially your reasonable faculties, maybe even your creative reasonable faculties, all his wittest dress, virtue to love and vices for to flee. So we must be put in mind, like Adam was, in such a way that we follow virtue and not vice. We should flee vice and follow virtue. That is how we should dress our wits. We should so arrange them, we might say. I like this metaphor of dressing our wits, making them fancy and decorating them in such a way that they are tuned toward virtue and away from vice. And then we have this interesting philosophical claim towards the end of the first stanza, for unto virtue longeth dignity. That longeth, we would say, belongeth or belongs. For unto virtue belongs dignity, and not the reverse softly dare I deem. Softly dare I deem means something like I confidently claim or judge it to be so. We use the word deem sometimes in English still. I deem that to be a poor choice. It's it's kind of antiquated, but I think it's still in our lexicon. For unto virtue longeth dignity and not the reverse. So this is actually a very important thing to say, and maybe today it's not as Socially important, as saying in Chaucer's time, where you do have a feudal system where there's a much more strict demarcation between classes. He's saying, Unto virtue belongs dignity. So dignity is not something that belongs by right or by nature to any particular class. If you want to be dignified, you need to be virtuous. It's virtue that leads to dignity. It's not that if you are dignified in a sense of being high class, you'll just naturally be virtuous. It's the problem with the word gentleman. C.S. Lewis talks about gentleman originally means something like a man of a certain estate who owns land, an aristocrat, we might say, a landowning aristocrat. It starts to be associated with a particular manner of life, virtue, manners, etc., We have this problem that Chaucer is addressing here where we think, oh, if someone is high class, they must be high in morals. And Chaucer is saying, no, it's the other way around. If you are virtuous in your morals, that is what gives you true dignity. Some sort of dignity or nobility simply of class, of riches, of owning land, that doesn't guarantee virtue at all. And in fact, in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, often the rich people are the ones who are the most vice-ridden or full of folly or full of, you know, poor wit. So in the second stanza, then, we have a further, I think, description of what kind of guy Adam was. The first stock was full of right-wisness. Now, he has a W there, right-wisness. We might even want to pronounce it right wiseness This is effectively the word righteousness, Though that why is in the middle of it, I think, is interesting. It makes us think of righteousness as perhaps something that has more to do with the intellect than we often think of it being. The first a stock was full of righteousness, true of his word, sober, piteous, and free, clean of his ghost or ghost, I think I pronounced it. Uh, That means clean in spirit. And loved busyness against the vice of sloth in honesty. Now, I think when we hear busyness today... We think of maybe like being a busybody trying to, you know, get in everyone's business. Or maybe, if not that malicious, at least trying to distract ourselves with work. The opposite of peace and calm. But that's not what he means by busyness. By busyness, he here means something more like diligence. Something more like uh, doing the right work in the right way at the right time. And I think we can see that in the context because he contrasts it with the vice of sloth. He loved busyness against the vice of sloth in honesty. And but his heir loved virtue, as did he. He is not gentle, though he richer seem. So we now have this question, okay, so will Adam pass on to his heirs all this gentleness, all this uh, virtuous nobility of spirit? Well, and but his heir love virtue as he did, he is not gentle, though he riches seem. So if you know Adam's descendants, as we know very well with the Cain and Abel story, just because they're the son of Adam does not mean that they will have his nobility. The key, and this is going back to stanza one about unto virtue longeth dignity, the key is to love virtue, but his heir loved virtue as did he, he is not gentle. And I think, once again, there's a class dimension here. Just because a father was rich and virtuous and the son is rich, that doesn't mean the son will be virtuous. He will only seem gentle, but he'll only just be rich unless he loves virtue. It's a very moral—we might not even say moralistic poem. It's not like it's telling us a story and then reminding us to be good boys and girls. The whole point of this is to— give us a picture of what it means to be this man or woman of gentleness. Vice, now we're in the third stanza, which there's an argument as to whether the the focus is God or Adam. Vice may well be heir to old riches, but there may no man as men may well see bequeath his heir, his virtuous noblesse. So not only... Might someone be rich but not virtuous, vice may be well to heir to old riches. Maybe if you're rich, that may naturally more lead to vice. But there may no man, as men may well see, bequeath his heir, his virtuous noblesse. Even if you want to pass on, even if you want to bequeath to your heir, your virtuous nobleness, no, your heirs have to love virtue for themselves. And that's the only way to true dignity and to true gentleness. And then we have this last description, which is very interesting. That is a proped unto no degree, but to the first of father in majesty that maketh his heirs hem that can him queem. We have a lot of words in here that are very Middle Englishy that don't sound very modern. So let me walk us through it for a minute. That is a propid unto no degree. I think appropriated or, or, or apportioned is what a propid means here. But to the first a father, father, he spells it with a D, but it's father. But to the first father in majesty that maketh his heirs hem, it, it's an old-fashioned way of saying them, that can him queem, queem is a please or a do the will of in a satisfactory manner. So there is a first father that gives nobleness or virtue only to those heirs that please him. The word father seems to not so much be about Adam, but to be about God himself. Those who please God, perhaps God gives virtue to them. But I think that one of the Boethian ideas hiding behind here is that if you want to know how to be virtuous, please God, and you will become virtuous. Not because virtue is some prize for pleasing God, but virtue is the natural consequence of pleasing God. To please God is to find yourself in the path of virtue. Now, I realize that this has been a really deeply ethical poem, and this is one of the things that I like about Chaucer. We think of his often this sort of comic poet or this poet of, you know, unflattering portraits of the rich and powerful and famous in in late 14th century England, But Chaucer is also, in his lyric poetry, he's trying to puzzle through these questions of ethics in sometimes a pretty abstract way. But I like how he ties it here to the figure of Adam, and then to the father of Adam himself, or to the second Adam, Christ. One of the things that poetry can do is use its form—here we have these seven iambic pentameter lines rhyming A, B, A, B, B, C, C— with this repeating refrain of all were he might or crown or diadem, which I will mention in a second because we haven't talked about that line yet, you can use these lines to meditate on just a straight-up philosophical ethical issue or even a question of the relationship between aristocratic class and an ethical virtue. We shouldn't be afraid of poetry from another age that takes as its subject something that we might shy away from because it seems not poetic enough. There are no flowers. There are no, you know, birds. There's no, you know, really even characters in this poem to attach to, except for the Adam character, who seems a little inaccessible to us. He's like Superman, right? He's, he's noble and virtuous and kind and everything. And also, in case we didn't feel distance from him enough, we have Chaucer remind us, no, 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 he didn't necessarily pass that on to you. In fact, he might have only passed on riches, which will lead you to vice so we feel very distanced, I think, from the subject of this poem. But there's this idea that there is a possibility of pleasing God, maybe even pleasing Adam at his best, following in his footsteps. This repeated phrase, which comes at the end, and not the reverse, softly dare I deem all where he might or crown or diadem. He is not gentle, though he rich a seem all where he might or crown or diadem that maketh his heirs hem that can him queen, all were he miter, crown, or diadem, Those are the rhyming couples at the end, the CC rhymes at the end of each stanza. All were he miter, crown, or diadem is a reference to, it doesn't matter whether you are a man of the miter, that is the bishop's miter, a man of the church, a man of the crown, which refers to, of course, kingship, or a diadem, which from what I've read in the criticism seems to refer to the emperor. This is a world that Chaucer is living in where you don't just have a local king, you know, over your kingdom. There's also the Holy Roman Emperor or, you know, the emperor in Constantinople. Remember, Constantinople hasn't yet fallen to the Turks in the 1380s, or even maybe even more far-flung empires like the emperor of the Ottomans or something like that. So he's saying all of the things I'm saying about virtue and how riches and how nobility of class do not guarantee nobility of morals. All of this applies equally to the rich and powerful everywhere, whether you're a leader of a church, a leader of a country, or a leader of an empire. Pointing the finger at all the people we would assume, well, you know, of course they have such power and such prestige and such riches. They must be virtuous. And he's saying, no, 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 none of you are off the hook. And if the Pope or the Bishop or the King or the Emperor isn't off the hook then certainly we as common readers wearing no miter crown or diadem are certainly not off the hook. But also, I think we might, as American readers, have sort of maybe a reverse problem. If in Chaucer's day, we imagine that you know the shiny crowns or diadems or martyrs imply virtue, In someone. I think today we might assume that, oh, all the rich and powerful are evil. If we're not rich and powerful, that means we must be good. And I think Chaucer would say, no, 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 no. Regardless of your assumptions about class or station and their natural connection to virtue, what you need to be is virtuous. What you need to be is true of words, sober, piteous, and free, clean of spirit, loving busyness against the vice of sloth. That's what you need. And that doesn't at all depend on your station, whether you're the poorest of the poor or the richest of the rich, or like most of us somewhere in between, this poem is reminding us that class and privilege are not good indicators of ethics. And thus, wherever we are, we can pursue gentleness, the true gentility, which perhaps scoffs at the prizes and acclaims of men and seeks instead those deeper things that existed before the fall in our first father, and of course, in the end, are at home beyond being in the maker of man. This is a very, very late medieval idea, but I think it's one that can be helpful in our age. And I'm thankful to Chaucer for writing and being bold to write a poetry that takes these ideas head on. Thanks for listening. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can email us at poetrycornerpodcast at stconstantine.com.